it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you noticed, I wasn't here last week. There was still a show, but it was an old show. Uh, I was in San Antonio, Texas with uh, a bunch of folks from pregnancy centers all across the country. Had a great meeting. And, uh, and man, there's a lot of great work happening around this country for women facing unplanned pregnancies. And I'm just honored to be a part of it uh, here in our community in Knoxville. Uh, but we're grateful for all those that stand with us to allow us to do that work. A lot has happened since I was on air last. Uh, some, some things happened in Afghanistan as the withdrawal continues. We lost 13 members of uh, the Marines uh, to a bombing. Uh, over 100 Afghan, uh, Afghanis were, uh, were killed, hundreds injured uh, with a bombing there at the airport in Kabul. Uh, it's Kabul, Kabul. I say Kabul, but um, just just sad. Just a sad state of affairs. We had flooding in Waverly, uh, Tennessee, and people have lost their lives and lost their homes. And the pandemic numbers to continue to to be front line, front headline news. Uh, just a lot of things happening that we need to pray about. But I want to start today with uh, specifically talking about. Uh, the soldiers that were lost in Afghanistan. I think at times we spend a lot of time talking about negative. We spend a lot of time focusing on bad guys, bad, uh, that are, that are doing bad things in our country and we know their names, but at times we, we forget or neglect to know the names of those, uh, that are doing good work, uh, that happen to lose their life in doing good work. So I want to start there because I think it's important that we give them the credit and, uh, the respect that they deserve. So the U.S. Department of Defense on Saturday released the names of the 13 service members killed in Thursday's attack at the airport in Kabul. The attack marked one of the deadliest days for American forces in the past decade of the 20-year war in Afghanistan. And they call it a 20-year war, and I think that's important uh, that we dissect that a little bit, and we will here in a second. But, but we just had 2,500 soldiers in Afghanistan before the withdrawal. Did you know that? You see, when you hear the 20-year war, you think that we have, I don't know, 100,000 soldiers, 50,000 soldiers in Afghanistan. But the truth is, right before this withdrawal, we had 2,500 soldiers. Some would even say that's a, a cork in the bottle, meaning we were there with 2,500 soldiers present to prevent the Taliban and al-Qaeda and ISIS-K, and all these terrorist organizations, we wanted to prevent them from taking over. So we felt like 2,500 is where we need to be, and guess what? 2,500 was working because we were working in conjunction with the Afghan forces that we trained, that we resourced, that we equipped. And as soon as we started pulling troops out of there, what happened? In, in 24 to 48 hours, the Taliban came in and took over everything. The Afghanistan president left the country. And then we, we find ourselves in a predicament where we let go of all the airports except the one in Kabul. And then what, did, what, what we have learned over the last few days is we were depending on the Taliban to protect us. We were depending on the Taliban to, to have a perimeter security around the airport to assist us. Now, the administration would say we don't trust anybody, 
but this is where we are. They control Afghanistan, so we are trusting them. And then you'll hear things like, well, uh, the Taliban and ISIS-K don't get along. Well, but they all have the same goal. They may not get along, but they both agree they don't like us. And so we find ourselves in this predicament. A predicament that, that had Afghanis trying like everything to get into that airport. To the point where they were grabbing a hold of the airplanes as they were taking off. And some of them falling to their death. That's how bad they wanted out of a Taliban controlled Afghanistan. To the point that moms were handing their babies to soldiers over the fence and saying, if I can't go, at least take my baby. That's how bad they want out of a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. You see, so it's not as easy as just withdrawal. It's not that easy. And if we remember, Afghanistan used to be a safe haven for terrorist organizations. If you'll remember, we haven't heard the name ISIS in a few years. And yet, we hear the name ISIS when we think about the bombings that occurred in Afghanistan last Thursday. So so when we call it a 20-year war, that's not necessarily true. In a statement issued on Saturday, President Biden called the Americans who lost their lives in the bombing, quote, heroes who made the ultimate sacrifice in service of our highest American ideals and while saving the lives of others. Their bravery and selflessness has enabled more than 117,000 people at risk to reach safely thus far, Biden said. May God protect our troops and all those standing watch in these dangerous days. Shortly after a Saturday briefing at the Pentagon, Department of Defense officials said 11 Marines, one Army soldier, and one member of the Navy were identified as those killed in the attack. And this article I'm reading is from the NPR, and and here's what we have learned about the soldiers. Marine Corps Lance Corporal David Epinoza, 20, of Rio Bravo, Texas, 20 years old. He was a baby, a baby when 9-11 happened. Elizabeth Holgan told local st- uh, local TV there in Texas that she is trying to make sense of the death of her son. According to the local news there, uh, she received a phone call at 2.30 a.m. from the military to inform her that her son had been killed in the explosion at the airport. She said this, he was a great kid. We never had trouble with him. Nothing. He never got in trouble. He was a great guy, a great guy, very proud of him. Imagine a mother having to have that conversation. Epinosa's stepfather, Victor Emanuel, became part of his life at age three, but he saw him as his own. He said this, he was never my stepson, and I was never his stepfather. Texas Representative Henry Cooler released a statement saying that Epinosa is a hero and that his heart goes out to the family during this difficult time. Marine Corps Sergeant Nicole G, 23, of Sacramento, California. Just days before her death, Sergeant G posted a photo on Instagram of herself in uniform while holding a baby in Afghanistan with the caption, I love my job. Another one of her photos 
Shows her posing near a cargo plane as a line of people wait to board from the back. The photo is captioned, escorting evacuees onto the bird. Marine Corps Staff Sergeant Darren T. Hoover, 31, of Salt Lake City. Utah Governor Spencer Cox released a statement Friday offering condolences to Hoover's family and saying he was devastated by the Marine's death. Cox noted that Hoover died while helping to evacuate U.S. citizens and Afghans seeking asylum. Staff Sergeant Hoover served vi- uh, valiantly as a Marine and died serving his fellow countrymen as well as America's allies in Afghanistan. We honor his tremendous bravery and commitment to his country, even as we condemn the senseless violence that resulted in his death. Staff Sergeant Ryan Knauss, 23, of Corrington, Tennessee, right here in our backyard. I saw a picture of him that he sent to his mom, simply saying, all is well here. And then not too long after that, his life is taken. Marine Corps Hunter Lopez, 22, of California. Lopez, the son of two Riverside County Sheriff Department officers, Captain Herman Lopez and Deputy Alicia Lopez. Sheriff Chad Bianco said that Lopez planned on following in his parents' footsteps and joining the department as deputy when he got home from his deployment. Marine Corps... Lance Corporal Riley J. McCollum, 20, of Jackson, Wyoming. Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon tweeted on Friday thanking McCollum for his service and sending condolences to his family. He said this, I'm devastated to learn Wyoming lost one of our own in yesterday's terrorist attack in Kabul. Our thoughts and prayers are with the family and friends of Riley McCollum. Jenny and I, along with all of Wyoming and in, in the entire country, thank Riley for his service. McCollum's father told New York Times that McCollum was helping with evacuations and guarding a checkpoint when the attack at the airport happened. His father said this was McCollum's first deployment and that he had gotten married recently. His wife is expecting their first child. Hmm. Marine Corps Lance Corporal Dylan Marola, 20, of California. He was a graduate of Las Osos High School. Students honored him at a football game on Friday night by wearing red, white, and blue. Marine Corps Lance Corporal Kareem Nikui of California said they, they said this, It's my understanding that he rescued, per a sergeant that wrote the family, he rescued three families, and he was in the process of saving children translators that had worked for the U.S. government. He passed off a child and went back into the crowd, and that's when the bomb went off. Running toward the danger. Marine Sergeant Jahani, 25, of Massachusetts. Another one that passed away. Marine Sanchez, 22, of Indiana. Marine Schmitz, 20, of Missouri. Schmitz was on his first deployment, according to Fox News, there in St. Louis and was sent back to Afghanistan from Jordan to help with the evacuation efforts. Here's what his father had to say. My baby boy. My son. My Marine. My warrior. My soul.
Imagine. Just imagine. His father told a radio station in St. Louis that his son had always wanted to be a Marine. And he had never seen a young man train as hard as he did to be the best soldier he could be. His life meant so much more. I'm so incredibly devastated that I won't be able to see the man that he was very quickly growing into becoming. No one wants that phone call. Navy hospitalman, Soviak of Ohio, he's 22. The Soviak family released a statement on Saturday about the loss of their son, Max, who they say planned to make a career out of his Navy service. They said this, words cannot express how heartbroken we are with the news and we will miss Max tremendously. We are struggling to come to the grips with this personal tragedy and prefer to grieve with close friends and family. His family says that Max was most proud of being a Navy corpsman and a, quote, devil doc for the Marines. The statement said Max leaves behind a family of 12 brothers and sisters. Marine Corps... Page 23 of Nebraska is the last one listed. Look, we can we can be angry, and rightfully so. I'm frustrated. I'm angry with, with what's happened in Afghanistan. But in that anger and in that frustration, let us not forget there are parents, brothers, sisters, grandparents, wives, husbands, children that are mourning these fallen soldiers. It's a dark day. It was a dark day last Thursday. Do not neglect to pray for these families and to be thankful that there are men and women that choose to run toward the danger so that me and you don't have to. God bless those families. We'll be back. So I know typically each week on this show we talk about life and and abortion and and the work of hope. And we'll get to that in the next segment um, and some things that are happening around the country. But, But I wanted to spend the first two segments focusing on uh Afghanistan, obviously the first segment focusing on those that lost their life, uh, is we need to hold them up. We need to hold their families up. Uh, I, I can't imagine. My, my son is 10 years old. I have a daughter that's eight, another daughter that's five, and another daughter that's three. And I cannot imagine getting a phone call telling me that, that they took their last breath. I can't fathom it. And for these parents to get that phone call when their little boy or little girl is over in Afghanistan helping and, and saving lives, to get the phone call that that a bomb occurred and their life is no longer here, I, I can't imagine. So, so in the coming days, you're going to hear parents of these uh, of these soldiers. Some of them you're going to hear from. Some of them you won't hear anything from. But some of them you're going to hear anger and frustration 
And, and frankly, they should get a pass. Because if I got that phone call, I would be angry and I would be frustrated. And there's a good chance I would look for a microphone and a camera anywhere I could to voice my displeasure. And I probably would say some things I shouldn't say. And so let's show these families some grace in the coming days with what they're having to deal with. But now what I want to do is give us a little background. There's a great piece over at National Review by Jay Nordlinger. Uh, kind of giving a background on Afghanistan. So look, we, it's been a while. And when you hear these terms, endless war, there's not a lot of context to that. You, you hear endless war and you think, oh, we have 10 to 15, 20,000, 50,000 soldiers over there. That, that wasn't the case. If we see that as an endless war with 2,500 soldiers there in Afghanistan, which is what we had before the withdrawal, then we would see an endless war in all, pretty much everywhere in the country where we have soldiers. But we don't call those things endless wars. So the origins of the Afghan war are poorly remembered. War was not inevitable. The United States did not want to go to war with Afghanistan or in Afghanistan. We gave the Taliban a choice. Give up al-Qaeda, thus sparring your, sparing yourselves invasion, overthrow, and exile, or be invaded, overthrown, and exiled. And the Taliban chose the latter. So they did not give up al-Qaeda. This suggests a certain commitment between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. The commitment has never waned. The Taliban and al-Qaeda have issued loyalty oaths to each other. Donald Rumsfeld used to say something like this. We did not go to war for revenge, retribution, or retaliation. Those are the three misguided R's. The lives that were lost on September 11th, we cannot bring back. No, we went to war in self-defense to try to prevent further attacks on us. And then this, this author recommends a piece by Robert Kagan called, It Wasn't Hubris That Drove America Into Afghanistan, It Was Fear. People talk a lot of nonsense about the Afghan war and its purposes, smug nonsense, you especially hear this from the young, which is understandable. Kagan provides a valuable corrective. As I see it, we should have kept a military presence in Afghanistan for three reasons. Two relate to blunt self-interest. We have an interest in denying terror groups who seek to kill us the haven of an entire country. What we do in one country affects our relations with other countries, affects our standing at large, which affects our security. Everything's connected. As a national security official once put it to me, Quote, the hip bones connected to the thigh bone, end quote. In the 60s, there was a chant. The whole world is watching. Yes, it is. The third reason I have kept a military presence in Afghanistan is moral and therefore the most controversial. Some people feel or felt an obligation to keep night from descending on that people again. But if you mention girls' education, some people flip and this flipping is understandable. In any event... I will return to these subjects and these themes later. I've often said over the years, I'm glad I don't have to decide there are no easy decisions in Afghanistan. There are risks of staying or were, and there were risks of leaving, and that has to be weighed. The phrase, pitiful, helpless giant, came to mind. I looked it up, and this is Nixon's fuller phrase. Nixon said this, quote, if when the chips are down, the world's most powerful nation, the United States of America, acts like a pitiful helpless giant, the forces of totalitarianism and anarchy will threaten free nations and free institutions throughout the world, end quote. Every minute, the United States is leaking prestige, and this makes the world at large more dangerous for Americans and for everyone else. 
And, and so we can, I could go on and on and on, and I won't. But the reality is a decision has been made. And I think pretty much everyone can say it, it's been a debacle. And so as we think about what, what is happening there, as we are, I mean, today's the day. Today's the deadline. The 31st of August, we are supposed to be out of Afghanistan. And the administration can say we've gotten 117,000 people out. But we haven't gotten everybody out. And there are 13 soldiers that lost their lives. Yes, they came home. But they came home in coffins. There are women being kidnapped and killed. There are babies being killed. And so if anyone thinks that this withdrawal is going to keep us safe moving forward, you're not paying attention. Now, you'll hear folks say we have over-the-horizon capabilities, which means we have drones and we have abilities to see what's happening and all of this. But having people on the ground assisting the Afghans, that was where we needed to be. Look, I didn't want us to, I don't want us to continue to keep soldiers all over the place either. But if you're going to withdraw, if you're going to do it, there has to be a way of doing it where we don't have this amount of casualties. I mean, we were at a point where veterans, veteran special forces that are no longer serving the military are taking trips over to Afghanistan to save allies that they worked with when they were fighting there. Not, not military missions. Private citizens that served in the military taking their trip on their own dime trying to save people. You have the Nazarene Fund, the Glenn Beck program that, that is saving people's lives. And he posted the other day, no more flights out. May God have mercy on your soul. It's heartbreaking. And I don't know what's going to happen in the coming days and weeks and months. But, but we have a lot to reflect on and a lot of corrections to make as we think about what is going to happen with a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan where Al-Qaeda and ISIS-K and others, terrorist organizations, can come together and wreak havoc, not just here in the States, but around the globe. Pray for our nation, pray for our president, pray for the leaders that are going to be making these decisions. And pray for our soldiers as they do the hard things. We'll be back. Song, song of the South. Sweet potato pie and I shut my mouth. As we continue the conversation today, again, just I wanted to start the show, the first two segments, talking about Afghanistan because, and I know, look, I know a lot of folks have been talking about it. Uh, a lot of folks have, have gotten very political and said a number of things. I wanted us to take time to reflect on those that lost their life. I wanted to say their names, even though some of those names I had trouble pronouncing. I wanted to say those names on air. I want you to know who they are, to know their families, to know that many of them were either not born or a baby 
when 9-11 occurred, when the towers came down, they were babies. We need to remember that. We need to remember those soldiers who were, who were doing everything they could to get people out of that country to a safe place. They were fighting for the freedom of others while they're also trying to get America's Americans out of that country. The pictures that we've seen of airplanes full of people, the pictures that we've seen of babies being held by soldiers because the moms were unable to get on the plane, but they gave their baby to a soldier, an American soldier. They're not giving those babies to Taliban. They're not giving those babies to Al Qaeda. They're not giving those babies to ISIS. They're giving those babies to American soldiers. Why? Because those soldiers represent freedom. A freedom that much of the world does not understand. But they long for. So when we want to think about how bad things are. I want you to see that picture of a mom handing her child to an American soldier because she knows he represents freedom. So now as we change gears, let's look at what's happening around the country when it comes to abortion. In South Dakota, a federal judge has struck down a statute requiring women to obtain counseling about abortion alternatives prior to having an abortion. U.S. District Judge Karen Schreier who issued a temporary injunction against the policy, first blocked this same statute 10 years ago after a legal challenge from Planned Parenthood. This time around, as the state sought relief from Schreier's initial injunction, the judge reiterated her previous decision, asserting that not enough has changed over the intervening decade to alter her prior ruling. Schreier insisted that the policy continues to likely infringe on women's right to free speech secured in the First Amendment, and it presents an undue burden on a woman's right to access abortion. A pregnancy help center counselor enters an interview with a pregnant woman under the paternalistic assumption that the woman has not yet decided to seek an abortion of her own violation or her own volition, Schreier added, but rather because she is unable to make a decision on her own and is subject to societal pressures. South Dakota will appeal the decision to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Given that the U.S. Supreme Court will soon decide on the constitutionality of the prohibiting abortion before viability, we are asking the Eighth Circuit to recognize that people's legislators should have the ability to pass pro-life laws, the office of Republican Governor Christy Noem said in a statement responding to Schreier's ruling. Since becoming governor, Noem has backed the South Dakota legislature in its pro-life policymaking goals, the most recent of which was a law prohibiting doctors from knowingly performing an abortion chosen on the basis of an unborn child's Down syndrome diagnosis. Pro-life lawmakers have defended the counseling policy since its initial enactment, arguing that it's important to ensure that women aren't obtaining an abortion under duress, especially in the form of coercion from a partner or others, a situation that does occur, though hard statistics on the subject are difficult to find due to the general lack of abortion reporting requirements. Planned Parenthood, which filed the initial challenge to South Dakota's law in 2011, sounded much like Schreier in their legal argument, asserting that counseling requirements are an unconstitutional limitation on a woman's right to abortion. Opposition to informed consent is a common refrain from abortion providers and supposedly pro-choice advocacy groups, which routinely challenge policies requiring women to obtain counseling or additional information prior 
to choosing abortion. Earlier this month, for instance, Planned Parenthood sued the state of Montana over several new pro-life laws, including an informed consent statute that requires abortion providers to divulge the steps involved in a chemical abortion, possible medical risk and complications, and information about a safe procedure that can reverse the effects of a chemical abortion drug. In its lawsuit against Montana, Planned Parenthood described this as false and medically unsupported information and said the laws amount to biased counseling that attempts to scare women out of having an abortion. The argument is not especially surprising coming from an abortion provider that regularly challenges state laws requiring doctors to give women the option of viewing an ultrasound of their unborn child prior to having an abortion. Abortion advocates would have us believe on the one hand that they're pro-choice rather than pro-abortion, insisting that deciding whether or not to have an abortion is one of the most difficult and uh, monumentous life choices a woman will ever make. But at the same time, they march into court time and time again, arguing that it violates the women's right to, the woman's right to tell them about the details and risk of abortion or to give them a chance to consider alternatives. Without accurate information and with the possibility of coercion, it isn't much of a choice at all. And so as we think about that, we, we have folks that, that literally, first off, there's no coercion happening inside of pregnancy centers. It's just not happening. Now, there is coercion when it comes to uh, the male partner of the female that is pregnant. There's certainly coercion there. There's coercion from parents and grandparents, and there's coercion from the abortion industry saying that abortion is no big deal and, and it's just a clump of cells and it, because they're not giving the facts. You call it a clump of cells or a blob of tissue. Why? Because you are trying to coerce them to get rid of the thing that is inside of them. You're not going to call it a life because that humanizes the fetus. And then they may think, I don't need to get rid of this. So if there's any coercion happening, it's happening from the abortion industry. But but think about their argument. Their argument is, how dare these people... Try to convince them to not end the life of their baby. That's their argument. With a straight face, their argument is those pro-lifers are evil because they want to convince a woman to have a baby instead of ending its life in the womb. That's their argument. And, And they don't even try to hide that that's their argument. They're not apologizing that that's their argument. Yeah, I'm called the zealot. I'm called the crazy one. It's insane. Again, there's no coercion happening. But it, but if you were found guilty of convincing someone to keep their baby and not end its life, I, yeah, I'm not going to apologize that through counsel they decided to have their baby. I mean, what are we doing? It goes back to what we saw in Afghanistan. You, you have women literally handing their babies over to American soldiers because they know the freedom that comes with that and the opportunity for their child. And then in our country, the freest country on the planet, you have a segment of the abortion, not, not just a segment, you have the abortion industry saying you should be able to end the life of your child. That's the freedom we stand for. That's the freedom we support. The freedom to end the life of your child in the womb. That's nonsense, folks. It's evil. 
I spoke at a church last night or a couple nights ago. And after I spoke, I had a man come up to me and say, how much does it cost to, to cover a baby shower? And I told him, and he just looked at me with, with fighting back tears, biting his lip, and he said, I have my reasons, but I'm going to mail you a check. That I have my reasons why he fights back tears tells me he's post-aborted. I had another man come up to me and say, I appreciate what you do. I lost my, my baby girl to an abortion years ago, and it's what drove me to a drug addiction. And I'm currently in, in, in rehab, and I'm getting help. And I appreciate the work that you're doing. Don't tell me there's no ramifications, no lasting effects from choosing abortion. Don't tell me that men have no say in the matter. Don't tell me it's just like any other procedure. Just get over it. it that's not how it works. And so as we think through this, you know, I often talk about laws and different things that are coming across the uh, the legislative landscape. And we get bent out of shape about it and we get fired up. But, but I want you to pay attention to the arguments of the abortion lobby. Not so much the, the arguments of the judges. Now, we need to pay attention to those too. And not necessarily so much of the text of the legislation, but the arguments of the abortion lobby. They are arguing in this case, a woman shouldn't have to get counseling before an abortion because she may be convinced to keep her child. That is their argument. What world are we living in? Oh, we don't want her to have counseling because then she may choose to keep the baby alive. Folks, we must be better. We must do better. We must call our legislators to do better, our governors to do better, our presidents to do better, our congressmen, our senators to do better, our judges to do better, our communities and our churches to do better. It's worth it. We'll be back. So as we finish up today, you know, look, we talked about a number of things and, and we as a, uh, as a community and, and whether you live here locally or you're listening to this, uh, somewhere else in, in the country around the globe, we as a biblical Christian community, these are things that we need to care about. These are things that we need to pray about. These are things that, that may make us angry, that may fill us with joy, that may frustrate us, that may disappoint us, that may hurt us, that may cause us anxiety. But we get through none of those things without leaning on the creator of the universe. Because you're not going to be able to shoulder that burden. I'm not going to be able to shoulder the burden of, of, of these arguments, these uh, nonsensical arguments that say a woman shouldn't be convinced to keep her child. 
Who are we to convince her to, to not end the life of that child? No, these are nonsensical arguments that, that frankly drive me bonkers. I can't carry the burden of that. I can't carry the weight of a, a close to a million abortions every single year. I can't carry the weight of abortion by de- on demand via the mailbox that, that we're seeing populate all over the country. People getting pills in the mail and having abortions at home. I can't carry the burden and weight of that, and you can't either. It should break our hearts. It should move us to, to engage. It should It should motivate us to get involved. But you cannot shoulder that burden. But God can. If you try to shoulder that burden, a, a few things will happen. You'll get burned out. And then you'll be no of, of no use to the movement, of no use to anything, because you'll be burned out and wore out and not be able to do anything. You, you'll be angry all the time if you try to shoulder that burden. And, and you being angry all the time does not make you a good dad, a good mom, a good husband, a good wife, a good grandmother, a good granddad, a good co-worker, a good churchgoer, a good member of a, of a body. You cannot be angry all the time. But yet, if you try to shoulder this burden, that's what you'll be, is angry all the time. If you try to shoulder this burden, you will cause yourself more anxiety than you could ever imagine. And again, you're not going to be productive if that is where you are. It will break our hearts, and it should break our hearts. But it cannot be our identity. You know, sometimes... Fighting the good fight becomes our idol. Fighting the good fight is is a worthy cause. But it should not become your idol. So don't try to shoulder the burden. Don't try to carry the heavy load. Because you can't. You can't. And if you try to, you might as well just walk over to the wall and start beating your head up against it. Because that's what it's going to be. It's frustrating. It's agonizing. When I hear these arguments, you, you have no idea what goes through. And, and some of you may have an idea because I, I, I tend to just say what I think on this show. But when I hear these arguments, I get so angry. And there's some righteous anger there. And, and I'll be honest, there's some sinful anger there. There's some righteous hate there. And there's some sinful hate there. And what I find is that when I start trying to carry the weight and the heaviness of that burden on my shoulders, the the righteous and, and sinful scale starts to tip toward the sinful because I'm trying to carry it all on my own. I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to convince. I'm trying to motivate. I'm trying to pursue. But when I find myself resting that that God, the God of the universe, can carry that burden for me and I can lay that at his feet, then that righteous and sin scale tends to start to tilt toward the righteous side. Because I know we're not going to see an end to abortion by just our works and us trying to carry that weight. It's not going to happen. Is it worth the fight? Is it worth the effort? Is it worth the time? Is it worth the money? Is it worth the volunteering? Is it worth the praying? It's worth all of those things. 
But do not let it become your idol. Or it'll take you down with it. Remember this week to pray for the the soldiers and their families. We have other soldiers still in Afghanistan from here locally. Pray for them. Pray that they get home safe. Pray for those that are sick in the hospitals with COVID. Pray for churches as they're making decisions coming up on what to do and, and businesses and organizations. And pray that life would be celebrated and abortion would be unthinkable. We'll talk to you next week.